to 8. And we're going to study in these, uh, these verses of Scripture. How many of you have uh, read The Heavenly Man by Brother Yun? Hands? Okay. Inspiring book. Uh, one of those books that you, you, are, you sort of love and you hate. You love it because it's just so challenging. You know, every third uh, page of the book, he's uh, won a thousand people for the Lord and uh, he's memorized half of the New Testament and, uh, you know, it's fantastic and you just hate him as well. Because you, know, you just can never match up to this kind of, this kind of godliness. Uh, well, he came to Leeds where I was pastoring up until a couple of years ago and uh, he was uh, speaking at the Ellen Road football ground and uh, I went to hear him. And he has a fascinating, any of you heard him preach? Fascinating style. He doesn't speak very good English, um, so he speaks, well, I think it's Mandarin, and he just goes for it in this kind of staccato style, I'll do it in a moment, and uh, no offence to anyone who's Mandarin here, and, uh, and some, someone would interpret it for him. So he'd be off and he'd say something, and someone would interpret it, and about ten times in this talk, which lasted about 45 minutes, he called people to the front for different things, for repentance, for faith, for uh, you know, a whole variety of things, for prayer. Very interesting style. So he starts off by saying, yeah, 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 or something like that. And the lady who's interpreting says, all of you here don't know Jesus Christ, come to the front now. You know, I spend 45 minutes in the Word before I ever do things like that. He's three minutes, they're down the front. Repenting, getting saved, dealing with their sin. And he does this about seven or eight times. And then halfway through the talk, he says, Yeah, 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 yeah. And the lady says, All of you who are church leaders here tonight, come to the front now. Oh, I hate things like that. <laughs> you know, I just, I'm great at asking people to respond. But oh, if I have to, so I'm sitting right at the back. I'm so far to the back. And there are about 200, 250 of the folks in my church who are sitting there. Nikki, my wife, who's always helpful at these times, she nudges me. She says, you've got to go. I said, I'm not going. I hate things like this. She goes, you've got to go. Not only do you have to go, but everyone else thinks you've got to go as well. Go. So all the other pastors of the churches in Leeds are down the front. I'm sitting in my chair. And Nikki goes, go, go. So I stand. As I stand, and stand in the middle of the aisle, Brother Yun says, yeah, 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 yeah. The lady says, all of you who have a problem with pornography, come to the front now. <laughs> well, I'm standing. And then you have this decision to, to take, don't you? Whether you continue to walk or sit down real quick. And I walk, and I can see members of my congregation going, mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you know, I discovered something um, quite interesting that night about me, I discovered that although I'd been a Christian for 20 years, I was still more concerned about what everybody else thought about me than I was worried about what God thought about me. I was still more concerned what everybody else thought about this guy who was walking down the front and how he might respond and what he'd been doing in his life and who he actually was than who God sees me to be. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's the way of our world, isn't it? In our world of technological advancement and uh, 
You know, you can have anything you want, more or less, as long as you've got the money to pay for it. We have an identity crisis. We don't know who we are. We're defined by, I don't know, what you drive, or where you live, or what your postcode is, or what clothes you wear, or what your dress size is, or, or isn't. Or if you live in Edinburgh, what school you went to. Well, you know, you're defined by, by these things and, and somehow you've got all these invisible sticky uh, notes, post-it notes all over your body which says, you, you're this. This is who you are. You know, I've discovered that as I, as I pass to different churches and as I go around to different places and speak, it's also true in the church. But we've got these notes all over us. Because someone once said, or because we look like this, or because we never did this, or because we have that gift, or we don't have that other gift, or no one ever asked us if we could be in leadership, or, or someone once said you never amount to anything. You've got all these notes all over you. And you know what happens when that, that occurs in the local church? It just means we're disabled. It means we cannot walk in the way God wants us to walk. It means that we do not victory in the way that Christ wants us to victory. It means that we live in insecurity. And most of the pastoral problems that come across my desk are actually to do with insecurity. People do not know who they are. And so tonight I want just to, I nearly said briefly, didn't really mean it. I want tonight just to try and unpack a passage of scripture that you know very well. A passage of scripture which, which like a stick of rock is breathed through by the Holy Spirit whispering identity, 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 identity. This is who you are. This is what it means to be a child of God. So will you listen? Will you listen with your hearts as well as with your ears to what God says, the Spirit of God says to the church? Open up that passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 8 and we're going to start deliberately from verse 29. Verse 28 is a, a verse you know very well. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It's a verse that we love and in equal measure we struggle with. We struggle with it when things go wrong. How can this be God working things together for good? Those of us who We struggle with it because we don't actually understand the next part of the scripture, who we are. So we're going to deal with verse 29 particularly and then following. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The Spirit of God whispers identity. Identity. And if you have a pencil uh, and a piece of paper or a pen and a piece of paper... If you bring your Bible with a wide margin, then feel free to write. Don't write if it's a Charlotte Chapel Bible. You can tell that because it's got a blue stamp in the front of it. It tells you. But if you feel free to write, just write these words with me. First word, for new. This is who you are. This is who you are. And right next to it, God knew or God loves or and God loves. God knew and God loves. This is incredible stuff. God knew and God loves. Turn and look at the person sitting next to you. Do it now. Not that good, huh? The Bible says that person is a miracle of God. That person is made in the image of God. That person is known by God. There's never been a that person before. 
There's never been someone who looks like that, who thinks like that, who was created in exactly that package before. God made them. God knew. God knew your personality and your mood, your likes and your dislikes, your issues and your heartaches and your insecurities, what gets you out of bed in the morning, how long you want me to speak for tonight, what pizza you're going to eat afterwards, whether you want Italy or France to win the World Cup. God knows all those things. He understands you completely. There's nothing he does not know about you. And he loves you. He loves you. Psalm 139, you, you know the passage well. You knit me together in my mother's womb. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I praise you that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you know what that means? It means you were not a mistake. Whatever you think, or whatever was spoken over you, or said about you, God planned you, knew you, and loved you. Foreknown. But the spirit whisper identity. Second word. Predestined. This is slow at the beginning. It gets quicker, don't worry. Predestined. That's a simple word. It's never been argued about in uh, churches before. You might want to circle that word and write these simple words next to it. He chose me. He chose me. And those of you who've grown up in church, uh, just like me, and have enough biblical knowledge to make you slightly dangerous, uh, you know exactly what this word means. It means that somehow this sovereign, almighty God, who's God and he can do exactly what he wants to do, somehow pre-selected and pre-decided beforehand that certain people will go to heaven just because, and other people will go to hell. You can't actually argue against him because he's God. Predestination. You know what? Predestination in the Bible has very little to do with going to hell. And in this part of Scripture, it has nothing to do with going to hell. Predestination is something for believers. And here it simply refers to the fact that God has pre-selected the goal to which he is moving every single one of us. And that goal in the passage is this, conformity to the character and the likeness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? God has decided beforehand that what he wants you to come out looking like is Jesus. He wants you to grow in the knowledge of God. He doesn't want you to stop. He doesn't want you to get saved and then wait until heaven comes. He wants you to grow in maturity and in passion for him and the knowledge of him. He wants you to look more and more and more like Jesus. More of his love, more of his compassion, more of his truth, more of his honesty. You know, sometimes I think when I speak at my church and around the place that God's primary concern is understood to be our happiness. You'd think that from our prayers at times. God, would you bless me? And would you give me? And can I have a bit more of? You know, God is absolutely concerned that we're happy. He wants you to enjoy this world that he's made. He wants you to have life in all its fullness. But primarily, His concern is for your holiness. That you would look more and more and more like Jesus. 
That you be conformed more and more and more to his character. That's why sometimes he has to bring trial and hardship and difficulty your way. Because he knows that's going to mould you and that's going to change you and that's going to shape you so you might persevere and look more like Jesus. Carl and Richard and Jane and Claire. Different personalities, different gifts, different skills. But more and more and more like Jesus. More of his caring, more of his loving, more of his compassion, more of his life, more of his fun. Third word is the word called. And uh, this is really the first time that you and I really get in on the act. These things uh, previously foreknew and predestined, the things that have happened to us and for us. And now something happens in us. The Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives. And those of us, whether we've had Christian upbringing or no Christian upbringing, God begins to stir something in us. The, the, the Greek is the, uh, the activity of the Holy Spirit alongside us, nudging us and moving us, bringing people into our lives, bringing circumstances into our lives, because God loves us so much that he has somehow to win us, calling us, drawing us, beckoning us into the story, wooing us. Of course, it's, it's your choice. It's your choice to embrace God or not, but he's the one doing the calling and he's the one doing the drawing and he's the one doing the wooing. The activity of the Holy Spirit. Some of you right here now, right here in in that part of the story, you don't actually know why you're here. How did this happen? You know, months ago I wasn't even thinking anything like this and then that situation happened and that person met with me and then I started thinking these things and someone introduced me here and I'm sitting here now and this guy's going on. I don't understand a word of this predestination thing but somehow I know in my heart God is drawing me. Something's happening. You with me still? Fourth word. Justified. But we're right alongside it. To be pronounced Right. To be pronounced right. Justified. To align correctly. To be right with God. To be lined up with God. Uh, How do you describe this? Word for windows. To justify. To be set right with Father God. Once you are out of line with God in your rebellion and in in your sin and in your mess and in your shame, but now God in Jesus has set you right in Christ. And the word is justified, but the picture, the picture is the cross of Jesus. The picture is the Son of God who comes for us, who stretches out his hands and he dies, so that you and I, with our mess and with our, our wrong priorities, and with our messed up attitudes, might somehow be righteous, and somehow be right with God. And in the moment of the death of Jesus, a transaction is done. And your filth, and your shame, and your sin, and all the things that you're not proud of, and all the things that somehow create a barrier between you and God, are cleaned up. And you're right with God in the death of His Son. Fifth word, glorified. You know, whenever I think of glorified, I think of heaven. I don't know what you're going to be doing in heaven. But in my head, I'm playing jazz piano and singing. 
I'm eating Haagen-Dazs ice cream I never put on a pound. Chicken tikka biryani and other things. I'm playing football like Maradona. I'm just, you know, I'm getting wings. How many of you are getting wings? None of you are getting wings. That's a shame. I'm getting wings in heaven. Glorified. Do you know the best thing about this third year? It's a done deal. It's not you might be glorified, or if you're really good, you're going to get glorified, or if you follow through this thing, you're going He who justified, also glorified. There ain't no doubt about it. I'm getting wings. I'm seeing Jesus face to face. I'm living forever in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And everything will be right. Will be right. And you know what the tent suggests to us here? That it's happening right now. That before your very eyes, I'm being glorified. And so are you. There are things that are happening in me. And there are attitudes that are changing. There are habits that are conforming to the likeness of the Son of Jesus. I no longer belong to this world. I'm called to live large in this world. But I live for the kingdom of God. There's something going on. And the Spirit whispers identity. He says, I foreknew you. And I predestined you. And I called you. I drew you. And I justified you. I cleaned you up at the cross. I'm glorifying you. Verse 31. If God is for us like this, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, implicit within this whispering of the Holy Spirit, and explicit here is that he also calls over us boldness. Do you know, I'm sick and tired of living in a wishy-washy, evangelical world where we hunker down on Sundays in our churches, even though there's lots of us. And we walk meekly into the streets during the week and pretend we never were in church on Sunday. The Spirit whispers boldness. Who can be against us? The Inland Revenue. My husband, wife, every man that ever lived, the girl who took my heart, chewed it up, spat on it. My church heritage they told me to sit down and shut up and don't be so bold and speak when you're spoken to. Some of us are so bound by others' expectation and our experience that we are not ever free to be the people that God created us to be. With passion and with creativity and with boldness to be the children of the living God. I've got um, four, four girls and they're uh, 11, 10, better get this right, 7 and 5 and uh, it's a handful. And uh, we occasionally go to the States where my sister-in-law lives and on one occasion we went across to Florida, uh, Fort Lauderdale. It's nice, swimming pool, very nice. And uh, we went to this house, and they've got a big open-plan house, but they've just got an Alsatian dog. And uh, my two youngest absolutely hate dogs. And uh, this Alsatian dog is big. You know, he's, uh, he's up to here somewhere. 
and my girls, you know, five and six at the time, were very you know, down here somewhere. And this dog would come up and be friendly and you know, lick them, and they would scream ah! every time he came for a week. And this dog lived in the house, and it was open plan. And what do you do? So every single time they entered the house, the dog came up, they screamed. They spent the first week sitting on the kitchen counter, the whole week, more or less, because it was away from the dog. The interesting thing was that every single time they screamed, they wanted me. And I'd come across, and I'd take them by the hand, and suddenly everything was all right. What they didn't realize was that I was just as petrified of this dog. (laughs) But they had Daddy's hand, and Daddy was going to sort it out. What are you afraid of? You hold the hand of the creator of the universe. He loves you. He chose you. He knows you. He's called you. Wouldn't that kind of thought bring an extra boldness to your ministry and your life? Wouldn't it mean that that actually you could go to your place of work and you could say, you know, this weekend I was at church, it was great. Well, the morning was good. Because God spoke to me and he changed me and challenged me and changed me. God is at work in this place. Why don't you come? Wouldn't it mean that you could begin to live outrageously in loving people who live next door to you or in the flat above you? Without expecting anything back, but maybe one day they'll ask you why. And you can say, because I live for something else. Someone that I believe in. I want to introduce you to a church where you can find out about him. Wouldn't it mean that we could actually begin to transform a community for Jesus Christ rather than hunker down in our separate churches and nobody know we really exist and everyone walk past us on Sunday because there's something better to do or so they think. The Spirit of God whispers boldness and identity. The Spirit of God whispers security. Look at verse 32, 35 and 36. Verse 32 says this, God didn't spare his own son for you. He gave you that much. He thinks you're that important. He died for you. Could you begin to trust him for the rest of your life as well? Could you? Could you begin to trust him for your life partner? Could you begin to say, Jesus, I lay it down And I'm trusting you because you work all things together for good. I'm trusting you to deal with it. Could you begin to trust him with your finances? Could you begin not to own anything? To hold your life like this, rather than like this? To let him have Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays and Friday evenings as well as Sundays. I'm in small group. A quiet time in the morning. Jesus, it's all for you. I trust you. Can you not trust him? You know, we live in an incredibly insecure world, don't we? If you just spent a moment thinking about it, we've got insurances for everything. We've got alarms on most things and entry codes. We're scared of anything happening to us and we've managed to make some kind of provision if it actually does happen to us. Look at verse 35 and 36. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Whatever happens. Nothing, the Greek word for the word nothing there means nothing. Technically. That's love. 
And this love of God is something that flows from the beginning of time for you. He picked you out. And will never stop flowing for you. Because he is from eternity to eternity. And he puts his finger on you now and says, I love you. There is nothing that can separate you. This love is for you. Who can't be separated from the love of God? You. In your shame and your sin and never reaching up to the standards and in your poverty of holiness and in your tangled web of broken relationships and in your quick mouths and in your slow reconciliations and in all your inadequacies and in all your insecurities and in all your hang-ups, he loves you. He loves you. That's an incredible thing, isn't it, really? That he should set his face, Jesus, towards the cross for you, because he loves you. That he should hang on a cross, Jesus, for you, because he loves you. That he should be separated from the Father, because he loves you. That's an incredible thing. The um, famous preacher, Savannah Roller, you've heard about him, he was a priest in Florence, Middle Ages, just before the Reformation, he was sort of pre-Reformation reformer, great preacher. And he used to fill the, uh, the cathedral in Florence. If you go to Florence, you can read all about him, you can see the place he preached. Um, he was uh, the minister in this, this, the priest in this place, when the Medici family were rulers of Florence. And the head of the Medici family, the king, he was dying. And on his deathbed, he called Savannah and he asked him, that he might pray for him on his deathbed, that he might make restitution, that he might be at peace with God. And Savannah Rollins said, I'll do that on three conditions. The three conditions were this, that you repent of all of your sin, that you give back every piece of property that you have stolen from the people of Florence, and thirdly, that you abdicate any right from your family of owning any part of Florence from here on in. He said yes to the first two, hesitated at the third, turned his face towards the wall and died without absolution. You can imagine the Medici family were were out for Savannah Roller's blood and they got him. They they arrested him in the cathedral and they lifted him to the highest point of the cathedral and they dropped him 13 times onto the stone floor. He broke most of the bones in his body. And they called the Pope's man from Rome and they set this pyre and they were going to burn him at the stake. And as the, the flames were licking up uh, Savannah Roller's body, body, the Pope's man said this, I excommunicate you from the church militant here and now and the church eternal. And Savannah Roller says, you can do the first, but you can never do the second. And he died. The love of God stops for you never. Whatever you've done. You can never be removed from his hand because his hand is too big. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And the Spirit whispers, identity, identity. The Spirit whispers forgiveness. Look at verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Let me tell you something really exciting. You know that guilt that you carry around in your life most of the time, like an ulcer that you stick your tongue in because it feels good? You don't have to carry it. You don't have to walk with it. He has justified you, set you right. 
He's cleaned you up. The cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus poured out. Who is he that condemns? Simple answer. The father of lies condemns. He says, you're rotten, you. God can forgive all these other holy people at Charlotte Chapel, but he can't forgive you because you think those things you think and you did those things that you do. You committed the unforgivable sin. You know that one that you do. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus? What's he doing? Look at the passage. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us. The word means advocating. He's saying, Carl, Father, it's Carl. Yeah, he's a bit of a wally. Yep, he's doing that thing again. (laughs) But he's one of ours. We love him. I died for him. Listen to him. Advocating. Who is he that condemns Satan? He whispered, you're nothing. Never be forgiven. Useless. The Spirit whispers identity. So the Spirit whispers identity and boldness and security and forgiveness. But you know what he shouts? He shouts tonight. And he shouts particularly in this generation. Come on. I don't know if any of you saw Wimbledon this afternoon. Is that allowable? Anyone? Just come on, you could admit that. Raphael Nadal. He shouts, come on. In fact, he shouts, come on! And you know, I think sometimes we think the Spirit of God just whispers. He shouts. He says, come on! You are more than conquerors. The word actually technically means hyper-conqueror. There is nothing that can win against you. There's nothing that can victory over you because you are in Christ Jesus and you have his love and you have his blood and you have been forgiven and you are secure and you're loved by the true and living God and you hold Father's hand. So why do you hide? Why do you carry the guilt? Why do you worry so much? The concept is this. You can walk with God in a close relationship with Him. You can be used in winning other people for Jesus even this week. You can love your wife in a way that you've never loved your wife before. You can bring up your kids in a godly way. You can be the best teacher those kids ever had. You can beat that habit. You don't have to give in again and again and again and again to that. You don't have to to compromise your relationship with God every single moment. Why? Because no longer can anything victory over you. Look at verse 38 and verse 39. These are huge, powerful things that that if we were to take them on their own without the preceding stuff, we might think, ooh, they're scary. But listen, they can't touch you, says Paul. Neither the crisis of death or the calamities of life can touch you. Come on. Neither superhuman agencies, good or bad, angels or demons, not time past, which so often haunts us. The things that we didn't do and the things that we did, I wish I could take it back and if only I'd done that other thing, or the future, that can't war against you either. 
so worried about what might happen if this happens and the other thing happens. Space, height, depth, they cannot war against you. Nothing else in all creation. Come on. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You're more than conquerors. Nothing that can get between you and the love that God has for you. Neither the pressures of exams or the pressure of parental expectation. It can't war against you. Neither the pressure to conform to the sexual ethic of the day or the ethos of cutting the corner at work can't war against you. Neither financial ruin or the lack of gainful employment, even today, you're more than conscious. Neither death nor life, angels or demons or any power or anything else in all creation, you are more than conquerors because Jesus loves you. And that's the secret. Simple, but profound. Because Jesus loves you. Because he died for you. Because God chose you. Because he cleaned you up. And because the Spirit whispers identity. Don't you want to live before you die? I do. I don't want just to hang around waiting for the angels to turn up. I want to live. So come on. It's time to stand. Time for some of the men to stand. You know, there was a time when my father's a pastor, and uh, there was a time when he talks about, you know, a whole bunch of strong, godly men in churches who would step up and give a godly lead. It's time for the men who've abdicated responsibility for spiritual things to say, I'm in this. It's time for some of you women. Stand. God put a fighter in you. Gave you creativity and passion to serve him and to live for him. Come on. It's time for some of us who've been walking for years with things that we don't need to walk with because we laid them at the cross of Jesus, but every ten minutes we pick them up again and walk with them and say, ooh, how disabling is this? To lay it down and to start a walking freedom. Come on. the 1988 Olympic Games. I'll finish with this. There was a guy called Derek Redmond. Derek Redmond was 400 metre runner, English. Pretty good for an Englishman. They said he might make the final. And uh, in, the, uh, in the first heat, he ruptured his Achilles tendon around the first bend in Seoul in Korea. And they said maybe his career would be finished. It was certainly the Olympic Games down the drain. Four years later, he got himself fit and he was in better shape. It was Barcelona 1992. And uh, they said that for an English runner, he might do really well. He might even get a medal. And uh, he won uh, his heat in a British record time. And they were all saying big things about Derek Redmond. Um, around the, in the semi-final, around the first bend, he ruptured the same Achilles tendon. And he lay on the track. Finished. Probably his career finished. The race was run and won in about 46 seconds. And Derek Redmond was still lying on the track. And uh, those of you, some of you who are old enough like me to remember this, you you saw it, the television cameras were there, a great big man started moving his way down the stand from the back of the stand. And he knocked people out of the way and he jumped over the railings onto the track and he got to his son, Derek's dad. And he picked him up and he said to his son, we started this thing together, we're going to finish this thing together. And they walked around the track, 400 metres, seven minutes. 
the biggest standing ovation of the Olympic Games as they walked around the track together. Father God says something very simple to us. We started this thing together. I knew you. We will finish this thing together. You can be sure I'm going to glorify you. You'll see me face to face as father and as judge. What I'm so desperate to do right now is to walk this thing together with you. Step by step, moment by moment, with identity, with passion, with boldness, with security. Because nothing can separate you. You're more than conquerors. And the problem in most churches is that we're big on the start thing. And we're big on the end thing. We really struggle with walking in the middle. Come on, says the Spirit of God. Let's pray.